right into my sermon as the choir was trying to sit down, and so they were all looking at me as they were panicked trying to sit down because I was in the middle of the sermon. So I'm going to give them a second. And I'm going to say this. So if you have never done this before, I would invite you at some point in church to come and sit over here on this side and just watch how fast Kyle Parsons' hands move when he's drumming, okay? It is very quick. So I had a little bit of a disagreement with God about this sermon. I decided I didn't really want to preach this sermon. And uh, he'd been laying it on my heart for a while. And so he said, that's fine. You don't want to preach it. You don't have to. Go ahead and come up with your own stuff. So I did. Three times. And they were all garbage. So I came back to this and, and I said, okay, God, um, let's roll with it. See, because uh, this, is, this is kind of, if, you, if, you, if you're friends with me on Facebook, I, I, I posted the other day that this is kind of part two to something that I preached back in October. That one was, he must become greater. So this is coming off of the verse in John 3.30 where John the Baptist says, he must become greater, I must become less. So here's the context in this. The context is that um, some of the disciples for John the Baptist had come to John because they were having an argument with somebody else over baptism. Most likely they were saying, hey, whose baptism is greater? Is it yours greater? Is it that guy over there who's baptizing down the river? That guy is Jesus, by the way. Like, who's, who's is greater here? And, and John's response, it, it, this, is, this is one of the, the, the final verses, is that he must become greater, I must become less. See, I must reduce because my purpose and my job, my task, is to point towards him. And so in order for me to fulfill my purpose, I actually have to become less as he increases. And really, when you begin to think about that, that is an incredible statement. It's an incredible statement, especially in, in maybe the society even that we live in today where, where it, it is about becoming more, accumulating more. One of the, the major realms in which I deal so often because of the age groups that I work with is within the context of social media. And social media is who is watching my stuff? How many people is watching this? How many people are responding to this? It becomes about more and more and more. It becomes about finding a bigger job. It becomes about having a larger church. It becomes about moving to a bigger college from the, the, the coaching standpoint that I come from. And so it's interesting that when we look at this, if we look at the context of humility, and we look at the context of John the Baptist, that he says that I must become less. You know, and, and, and I look at that, I, I say, okay, so, so what is this? What is this that, that John is teaching us, teaching us in, in we must become less? And I came up with him. I said, you know why we have to become less? Because we just can't seem to get out of our own way. See, when we become greater, we just can't seem to get out of our own way. We have everything teed up for us the ball is on the tee, the ball is not moving, and yet we swing and we miss. Now, granted, that analogy doesn't go all of the way because um, uh, for those of us who have played and quit golf, uh, we all know that a ball on a tee is not always the easiest thing on the face of the earth to hit, but you at least understand the analogy. So we've talked about my notoriously bad memory before. I have, I have a terrible memory, and yet there are these weird things that I just remember. I don't know why I remember them. At some point, I think I, I'm starting to think that maybe the reason I remember these odd things from my past is because they're going to show up in a sermon one day and God wanted me to remember those to illustrate something. 
It's about the only good thing that I've come up with, like this one. So I remember back, I don't even know how old I was. I remember the setting, so I know that we're talking 11, 12, 13, that um, one day my dad was playing solitaire with cards on the floor. If that tells you how long ago this was, he was playing solitaire with cards. I know, you can be play it with cards, not on a phone, right? But he's playing with, with cards on the floor, and he has it all set up, and he, he, he looks at me, he goes, hey, come finish this. It's all set up for you to win. You just got to play it. Now, I had known how to play solitaire, so okay, here we go. So he has it all set up. It is literally perfect for me. I am going to win. And if you played solitaire, you know that the way you play it is, is you have the, the deck that's down, and you pull out three cards, and then when you can't use those, you pull out three more, and you, you discard those into the deck in a certain order. Now, it was set up for me to win, and yet... And yet, when I got in control, I forgot how the cards went back in the deck. Because I forgot how the cards went back in the deck, I put them back in a different order, and so it was no longer set up for me to win. So even though everything was handed to me perfectly, here, take this and win this game, I messed it up when I was the one in control because I didn't do it properly. I shuffled the deck. I didn't play the game the way that it was supposed to. I think you can see the analogy in the fact that my father had set something up for me to enjoy, for me to bask, and he had created a situation for me to succeed, and when I got in control, I did not. And you know what scripture is full of? It's full of swings and misses. It's full of swings and misses. You don't have to go far to start with the first swing and miss. You'll forgive me if you can't tell. I've been watching a little bit of college baseball lately. Me and dad were texting the other day, and we've been watching, you know, the, the, the super regional tournament is going on. The next step is the College World Series, and there's a channel that's called uh, um, uh, Squeeze Play. And, and, and it's, it, it has all of the games going on on one screen. And so dad texted me, and he said, uh, you know, he's getting used to this multiple screen thing, so he needs me preaching. He needs on one screen, he needs my notes, and on the other screen, he needs my illustrations. So we can all see it all at once. I know watching me is probably enough of sensory overload, so I'm not going to do that to you. But it doesn't take long in Scripture to get to the first swing and miss. You go to Adam and Eve. You want to talk about a situation that was designed for them to enjoy. Live in the Garden of Eden. You've got everything that you need. Everything is perfect, meaning it's 72 degrees. I'll tell you what, after, after being here and it's been uh, you know, triple digits for the last three days, 72 degrees sounds awesome. Wow, I'm the only one that feels that way. Okay, sorry, never mind. Everything was set up for them, and they did the one thing that they weren't supposed to. Talk about shuffling the deck. Or the Israelites who got led out of Egypt. God does all these miraculous, amazing things. Eventually, they walk through the Red Sea, and, and there's water on both sides of them. And then after that, they grumble, moan and groan, and disobey the rest of the way. When they finally get into the promised land, all these amazing, miraculous things. You've got, you got walls being, being torn down by sound. You, you have all these incredible things that God is doing, and they get there, and they continue to disobey. And so what does God do? God sends a miraculous person, a judge, to come and to rescue them from their oppression. And they're rescued, and they come back to God, and you just know they're not going to mess this up this time, right? And then you turn to chapter 2 and over and over and over again. Or how about David? David, who did so many things right in his life. 
A man after God's own heart doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And then later in his life, one summer, decides to stay home instead of going off with his army as kings were supposed to do. And he watches somebody taking a bath on a roof. See, there's, there, there's a lot in the middle of those. There's a lot after that that we can point to where we shuffled the deck, where we had the opportunity to succeed, but yet when we became greater and we got in control, we faltered and we failed. There's a lot that we can look back on, look back on in our own lives, right? That we can, we can look back on and we can say, boy, I had this opportunity. If only I would have had this mindset. If only I would have taken these steps that God was pretty clearly showing me. And yet, I was the one who became greater. See, when we become great, we are relying on ourselves. We're relying on our own wisdom, our own knowledge, and our own power. And here's the deal. For some of you, I'm not going to say us. For some of you, that wisdom and knowledge and power is great. You are incredibly smart people. You are incredibly wise people. You do amazing things. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you are still not God. I hope that's not a shock for you to hear. So you're still not God. So then how is it that we pursue the becoming less of humility? The becoming less that allows God to become greater. So I want you to do me a favor. I didn't, I didn't warn you this. I apologize. Turn to Luke 14. I'm going to give you a second to turn there because we're going to stand and read that in just a moment. But we see one of, the, one of the key things that Jesus teaches so often about is humility. He teaches about humility. He teaches about humility so much that it should stick out to us every time that he does it. Now, I had a thought late last night that, uh, boy, it would be really interesting if I went and, and knew how many times the topic of humility was brought up in the Gospels and in the Epistles. But uh, it was late enough where I didn't have time to search it for myself. And the last thing I wanted to do was uh, Google that. Because anytime you start preaching on something you haven't uh, double-checked off of Google, you're bound to run into problems. So we're just going to say he talks about it a lot. Enough that we should pay attention. So do me a favor. Let's stand. This is our tradition. We read God's word in Luke 14. We're going to go verses 7 to 11. Jesus says this. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may, may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, once again we come to you, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how incredible you are. Lord, we ask that in this moment you would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and shape us through your words. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I, I look at this and, and I can't help but think when Jesus is talking about rearranging yourselves at the table, I can't help but think about the kids' table at Thanksgiving. I don't know how many of you have, have ever experienced that, but uh, you know some families, when they have Thanksgiving, the table is so large that the adults sit at one table, the kids sit at a smaller table that is the kids' table. 
Now, the ultimate excitement for someone who thinks they shouldn't be at the kids' table is aging up to the adult table. The ultimate insult is thinking that you are old enough to sit at the adult table only to be told you don't get to sit at the adult table because there's just not any room. So go sit at the kids' table. The adult table is such an exciting thing and the kids' table is the place that no one wants to be until you've been sitting at the adult table for 10 years and you're like, man, I wish I was back at the kids' table. But it's interesting that as we, as we take a look at this, this passage immediately follows a point where Jesus was, as we see so often in the book of Luke, talking to the Pharisees about some of the rules and restrictions that happen on the, or surrounding the Sabbath. See, a person who is ill, someone who has, has constant swelling, has come to Jesus on the Sabbath here at this, uh, it's a Pharisee's house, and so we can assume that, that many of the guests are Pharisees. At the very least, they're distinguished guests. They're guests that would be trying to get a spot of honor. And a person comes who is, who is ill. He is perpetually ill because of this perpetual swelling. And Jesus looks at the people because, you know, they've had all of these. It, it says in here that Jesus knew that he was being closely watched. He looks at these guests of honor and he looks and he says, hey, tell me this. Is it right for me or is it right for anyone to heal someone on the Sabbath? Does anyone know what they said? Exactly. They said nothing. You guys did great. <laughs> they said nothing. See, they said nothing because they knew that they were trapped, right? Jesus does this all the time to them. They knew that they were trapped. I mean, what are you supposed to say? Like, oh, you have the ability to heal someone who is eventually going to die from what it is that they have. No, don't heal them on the Sabbath. Let's wait till tomorrow when they may be dead. But if they say yes then all of the things that they have been arguing and all of the, the, the ways that they have been putting themselves as the expert to make sure that no one did certain things, putting all the laws about here's how much you can carry, here's how far you can walk, here's all of the things that you can do, what does that amount to now? And so they say nothing. And, and so it's interesting, at least we believe, that they go, you go right from this passage where they don't say anything to a point where Jesus is now talking, them to, talking to them specifically about the place that they are choosing at the table makes me think that they were far more concerned with where they sat at the table than they were with making sure that they were caring for and healing the people that needed it most. That they were far more concerned about their spot at the table than they were about the people that were hurting. It's interesting, again, the groups that I minister to and surround, and I spend so much time on social media. Sometimes it's fun and it's funny and I enjoy it, and sometimes it's depressing and aggravating and infuriating. Infuri infuri There's a lot of R's in that word, infuriating. I, I saw a video one time of a young lady who was, was speaking. She claimed to be a Christian herself, claimed to be a churchgoer, and, and said that um, uh, one of the things that really bothered her about the church was how often we preach on loving those that are difficult to love. Because the world seems to do just fine with it, and so if we are constantly preaching about it, maybe it's because we're constantly getting it wrong, which means we're not actually, you know, being the people that we say that we are supposed to be. Okay, 
That's one of those arguments in social media that sounds okay at first. And if you're willing to accept it on its face, you go, okay, sounds good. I did what we typically tend to do with social media. I decided that I was going to respond, so I, you know, angrily typed out messages really hard. You know, you can hear my keyboard clattering and clicking. No, that's not right. Delete, 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 delete. Another angry message. Delete, delete, delete. About six times I tried to reply to it and deleted all of them. Because none of them were anything that I was trying to say. They weren't actually portraying anything. And so I sat on it for a little bit. And I said, you know, here's the, here's the interesting thing. Maybe the reason that we teach about it so much, that we talk about it so often, is because nobody does it all that well. See, maybe when we start talking about that the world does so good at this and the world does so good at that, maybe it's the fact that we look at it and it's just that we're so good at separating ourselves from other people at removing ourselves from the situations that we don't want to be around and be involved in? Maybe, maybe that's why it seems like we love other people, just because we are separated from them. But yet the church, what we do is we say, no, this is not how that works. The way that this works is that we humble ourselves, is that we genuinely get into the hole with other people. We genuinely climb in and work through the mud and the muck and the suffering and the difficulties. That this isn't just something where we watch and cheer from afar. Because when we start looking at what love actually is, you look in 1 Corinthians or, or you look in places in Romans, what love actually is. Love is not the gushy feeling that you have with your 13-year-old girlfriend. Love is the action that is taken throughout the course of your life being there when when it seems like you want nothing but to leave. So Jesus teaches on humility because it's the first step in being able to genuinely love people that are put in our paths. And that's one of the marks of followers of Christ. So why do we pursue the humility of becoming less? Becoming less breeds compassion because it changes the angle from which we view others. See, ego removes compassion because it exalts me above everyone else and looks out for me first. See, when we change the angle, when we take the seat at the lowest spot at the table, when we kneel before someone to wash their feet as Jesus did his disciples, we change the view from looking down on, looking around, looking past, to looking eye to eye with someone who's seated right in front of us. See, becoming less means no longer lifting ourselves above everyone else so that way we can become great, so that way you will know who I am. That way you will make sure that you respect what it is that I say because I said it. You, you walk with me because I am next to you. See, following the discussion of the greatest commandment, Jesus told maybe the most well-known parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Two religious people, two religious Jews are walking down a road and they see someone who has been robbed and beaten and stripped naked laying on the side of the road and they continue to walk past. They, they aren't bothered with what is going on there because they're trying to make sure that they stay as separate from this situation. They don't know what happened. They don't know what's going on in his life. 
They know where they're going. They know where they've got to be. They know that if they wind up touching him, they're probably going to be unclean. And these are religious people, so they got things to do. They got places to be. So we're going to make sure that we are separate from that. And then a Samaritan walks by. A Samaritan, as, as many of you may know, but if you don't know, that the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along because of many of the cultural problems in their history, because of intermarrying, because of being carried off into captivity and then coming back. And there were other people on the land. There's so many different problems that come into Samaritans and Jews. And yet what we have is a Samaritan walking down the road, viewing a Jew on the ground and not viewing it as someone to remain separate from, but rather someone to aid in compassion. Picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes and pays for him to be taken care of at an end. Says, I'll pay the rest when I get back if there's more. And so what we see is we see that the good Samaritan had changed his angle of viewing. He no longer was looking down on the ditch from the high road. He was in the ditch with the person, caring for the person because they were hurting and needing help. See, this doesn't just apply to the people that we can look at and see on the side of the road, that we can see in homeless shelters, that we can see obviously hurting. It applies to the people that are in the pew next to us as well, right? See, when we begin to talk about humility, I can tell you from experience. I told you, I, one of the reasons I argued with God about this sermon is because I didn't want to be review, revealing much about my own experience, about my heart. And, but you guys know me. You know that I'm going to be transparent. I, I'm not going to sit here and preach to you from a position that I have never been in myself. You know, one of the most difficult places to deal in humility is with the people that you deal with every single day. Every single day. Maybe it's coworkers, maybe it's spouses, friends, whatever it may be. Those are the ones that often don't get the sense of humility from us. They don't get the sense of service most often. Dealing in humility, becoming less, is not just in the midst of the most pressing scenarios, but in the midst of our everyday lives. Becoming less bows to God's authority over our lives. See, oftentimes our ego removes obedience because it knows better. I'm the expert. I know what's going on. I've been doing this a long time. And, and yes, there are certain scenarios where your expertise will be greater than mine. But when we start talking about our expertise against God's, it takes a lot of ego to not listen. See, one of, the, one, of the way, or one of the things that Jesus is talking about, he's talking about in this moment, he's talking to these people who are the religious leaders. He, he, he just dealt with a man that he healed. See, let's not even talk about the, the, the theological and intellectual discussion about the fact that, that he's talking about do we heal on the seventh. Let's talk about the miraculous and the fact that he just healed this guy right in front of him. And he's talking to him. And he reveals that, that, that they're so much more concerned about their position than they are about revealing the heart and the love and the truth of God that they were actually overruling what it is that God was giving them. See, we, we, we look at another one. How about in 1 Kings 11? We look at Solomon. King Solomon, however, excuse me, 1 Kings 11, 1 to 6. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. 
Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord God, the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. To this point, Solomon was a good leader politically. He had, he had grown the kingdom to as large as it had ever been, as large as it ever would be. He had done all of the right things. It was incredibly rich. It was incredibly powerful. It was protected because of these seemingly wise alliances that he had made through marriage. That's what you did. It's the way you protected yourself from other kingdoms attacking is you took a wife that was one of their daughters so that way they're not going to come and attack. And let me tell you, if he's got 700 wives, that's a lot of alliances. He's protected. He's surrounded. The only thing that was going to bring down the kingdom of Israel was an act of God. And really, it was an act of Solomon. See, Solomon was the expert. Solomon, I mean, this is the guy, this, keep in mind, this is the person that we call the wisest person to ever live, right? See, as Solomon's kingdom had become great, Solomon had become great himself. Solomon was the expert. Solomon was the political leader. It reminds me of Saul when Saul offered a sacrifice before Samuel got there. Saul decided that he knew better, that he needed this now, and so he offers the sacrifice, and the kingdom was ripped from him in the same way that Solomon thinks that he knows better, so the kingdom is ripped from him. What happened to the wisdom of Solomon? And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is when... Do we start viewing ourselves as the authority rather than the vessel? When have we been put in positions that we began to think we are the ones that are great rather than the fact that God is using us to do great things? When have we been so wrapped up in being the authority or the expert that we missed the opportunity to reveal the truth of Christ to someone? See, becoming less goes against the immediate things that seem to make the most sense at times. Doesn't mean that they're not wise, but it means that God knows so much more about the future that we place our trust in God to be the all-knowing, to be the all-wise, to be the one who guides, directs, and points us in, in the right direction. Obedience is related to humility. Becoming less fosters unity because it's not about hoarding a claim, but about accomplishing purpose. See, you, you, can't, you can't work together in teamwork towards a greater goal when you're simply trying to build a claim, to build yourself, to build your platform, to build your own accomplishments. 
Ego removes unity because it only seeks credit. In 1 Corinthians 3, 4 to 8, Paul, in talking about some people following uh, Apollos and some people following Paul and kind of this, this uh, disturbance that's happening between the people that are, that are following, says, For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. See, ego doesn't like to share because we aren't at the center of the focus. See, one of the things about humility is that there are times when you will have done something really awesome and yet still be the person who is first and foremost cheering on someone else, supporting someone else in their ministry to other people, in their love around other people. See, one of the really cool things last week after the service, um, I had the opportunity to, to talk to our life group leaders. And really, it was more just about caring for them and loving on them and, 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 and building them up because these, this is a group of people that there's a really good chance that maybe you would know, if you were a part of a life group, you'll know your own. Maybe you'll know a couple of the others around. But if I blind all of them up here on the stage, or better yet, if I just told you, hey, there's seven of them in this room right now, you probably wouldn't be able to pick out all seven. Probably wouldn't know all of their names. And yet, these are people who every single Sunday show up, they prepare, and they care, and they love. They spend time reaching out. They spend time uh, teaching and reading and praying for everybody. See, that's seeking unity, not seeking acclaim, not seeking to build their own platform. See, when we talk about Apollos versus Paul, Paul looks and says, guys, it's all about God in the first place. It's the same thing. Jared does most of the preaching. Jared is one of my best friends. Jared Burt, the guy who usually stands here, by the way, just making sure we're all on the same page. Jared's become one of my best friends. And here's the deal is that when you leave this sanctuary, it is not my hope that you would walk out of here and go, you know, Jared's okay, but man, I really like Kyle. But it's that, you know what? God's working in this church. God's, 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 he's, he, he's using the ministers of this church to pour into the congregation and the congregation to pour into the area to do things that, 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 that maybe aren't, I mean, I mean, I guess they could be explained, but, but man, when you really look at the root of it, we know where it comes from. See, becoming less breeds unity because we know it's all about God in the first place. In uh, Romans 12, verse 3, Paul talks about this. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. 
If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. In Romans 12, Paul links humility with unity with service. Humility with unity with service. And so we, 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 we come to the conclusion, we, we ask, why is it then, how is it then that we seek after becoming less? It wouldn't be a really good sermon. It would be a great intellectual procedure if we ask about this but, but never really make any steps toward this. So we say, how is it then that we actually pursue becoming less? I'd answer you with this. In Luke 22, Jesus says this to his disciples. A dispute arose among them to which, to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Before I finish the passage, I want you to understand where this discussion, where this argument about which is the greatest uh, disciple, where this is happening. Luke 22, in verses 19 and 20, we see Jesus saying the verses that we use in administering the Lord's Supper and giving them the new covenant in his blood. In verse 21, Jesus says one of them will betray him. And in verse 23, they were questioning who it is that would betray him. At the Last Supper, when Jesus is about to go and take on the torturous sacrifice that happens over many, many hours... The disciples are arguing over which one of them is the greatest disciple. And there are moments that I can't help but think that I do the exact same thing. Jesus says this, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. When we serve, we take the least important spot at the table. We move ourselves from the adult table to the kid table because we seek the service that humility brings us. We seek the opportunity to care for the people around us, to love on the people that we have a different viewpoint of. Whether it be easy, whether it be difficult, whether it be the person sitting in the pew next to us, whether it be the co-worker at work, we remove ourselves from being the greatest and we become less because we seek after that which Christ did and has called us to follow him in doing. Father, we come to you and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your scriptures and for your words and the way in which they guide us. Father, we ask that as we move into the last part of this service, but into the rest of this day and the rest of this week and this month, Lord, that you would continue to guide us. Father, you would reveal to us what it means to become less, what it, what it means to walk in humility and the ways in which walking in humility line up with that which you've called us to. Father, we ask that we would look to you as the expert. We would look to you as the wise one. Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts 
that, Father, whether you're revealing yourself personally or whether you are revealing truths about Scripture or, or maybe something that you have been poking and prodding at our hearts for a long time, Lord, that this would be the moment that you make that so clear. Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be down front. As we respond, if it's sitting and praying, if it's standing and singing, if it's grabbing a friend, coming to the front, going to the back, coming and talking to me, however it is, whether God's revealing himself to you and you come down to say, I need Christ, whether it is coming and, and asking for prayer, whether it is, I, I don't know, whatever it is. I've run out of options. But I just ask that we respond now as we stand, sit, sing, pray, however it is.